Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's 6 a.m. and we're in the Kiev train station, which is an absolutely beautiful example of Stalinist monumental architecture. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. He's currently in Ukraine. I met Alyeg and Masha here, who just arrived from Kramatorsk, a city in Ukraine's east. They were here to see their 21-year-old daughter for the first time since she was injured in a horrific missile attack. They had to travel via the city of Dnipro, because the station in Kramatorsk was destroyed in a bombing in the first few weeks of the war. But Ukraine's rail company has recently repaired the tracks, and today the first train is set to depart. So this, this is going to be the first train from yes, Kiev? Yes, this is going to be the first train in the last, in the last six months. So basically the last train... Alexander is... Shevchenko is the deputy head of Ukraine's passenger railways. In peacetime, he'd be communicating information about schedules, now he tells me he's conducting iron diplomacy through the country's trains. Normally, I would say that Boris Johnson or whoever would normally take a plane uh, arriving to Kiev. Now, uh, well, when they step out of the train, we usually say thank you for choosing our train. But obviously, we understand that there is not much of a choice. Basically, he could have walked here or he could have, you know, chosen the train. Which is why keeping the trains running has become so symbolic. We understand that all those people like uh, Anthony Blinken, like Emmanuel uh, Macron, Whoever, uh, they spend two or three hours with the president, but in, on the train they spend like 20-something hours arriving to and from. So basically we are the railway people, the first people who, who they meet, and the last people in Ukraine who they meet. So basically we are to make the first impression and the last impression. At 7.02 exactly, the train pulls out of the station, with the city anthem of Kramatorsk playing on the public address system. It's just one of many efforts to rebuild what has been destroyed in the war. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, how is Ukraine's economy holding up and what will it take to rebuild the country? First, we'll hear from the boss of Ukraine's biggest steel company about how he's struggling to keep up production. Right now, in terms of steel making, we're operating at 30% to a half of the pre-war levels. Then, we'll hear from the IMF about just how hard it will be to finance the reconstruction effort. Look, I think that the problems and the magnitude uh, which we see during the war in Ukraine now have not been met before in any terms. And we'll ask what more needs to be done. Questions are being raised in Washington why the U.S. should fund Ukraine and contribute the majority of the military aid when this is a European war. And how best to spend the aid that's being promised. 
Hey, Alison Samir. Hi, Mike. Greetings from a nation dying to know if Liz Truss's premiership will outlast a head of lettuce. Uh, yeah, like most uh, other British people, I've been glued to Prime Minister's questions and the Daily Star's live camera of a decaying head of lettuce. Yeah, let it be known that it was The Economist that started the lettuce phenomenon. It was our thing. Uh, it's been hijacked somewhat. Yes, I mean, it was a brilliant comparison. So obviously other people have nicked it now. But um Britain seems to just be lurching for sort of one ridiculous crisis to the next. We had Partygate, now we have Lettuce-gate. Our leaders just seem to repeatedly get themselves into uh, existential crises of their own making. But in today's show, we are going to be focusing on a much more serious crisis. Right. And unlike the UK's, this is one that is very much not of Ukraine's own making. As you heard at the beginning of the show, Matt Steinglass, our Europe correspondent, has been travelling around the country to try and get a sense of just how it's doing. And our Europe economics editor, Christian Odendahl, has been looking at the data to get a realistic picture of how the country's performing economically. They're both joining us for this week's episode. Matt, Christian, hello. Hi, Mike. Good to be back. Hi, Mike. Matt, let's start with you. I think you're speaking to us from a steel factory. Is that right? Yes, I'm at the ArcelorMittal steel plant in Krivirich, Ukraine, uh, which is the hometown of the president. It's an absolutely massive steel plant, about 4,000 hectares. So what have you been seeing as you've been traveling around in terms of uh, Ukraine's economy? Because the scene you painted at the beginning of the show about the first train out of Kiev back to the station that had been bombed where 60 people had died was really powerful. It's visible that the economy in Ukraine is not running at the level that it was at before the war, obviously, but it is a highly functional economy, at least in the big cities that I've been in. In Kiev, nightlife is still thriving until curfew sets in at 10 p.m. There's traffic. The delivery services are running all the time, delivering restaurant food, people Apparently, Ukrainians tend to complain that the delivery services in the West are not as good as they are in Ukraine. Uh, And there is a palpable sense of enthusiasm about rebuilding the country, participation from business, participation from civil society that actually feels strangely optimistic. And now, Christian, that's the feeling on the ground, but you've also been looking at the data. What do the sort of uh, figures on the economy tell you about the current state of what's going on? So the economy is stabilizing, even starting to grow a little. Uh, We can see this, for example, from surveys of businesses in Ukraine. Uh, Firms say that they are working quite a bit more than they they did did in the spring. Uh, We know that people are returning to those areas that have been liberated or at least less risk of of seeing um, the war. So six million previously displaced citizens have already done so. And we know that the grain deal, for example, that allows Ukraine to export agricultural commodities is helping farmers. It's also helping metals exporters as the deal frees up precious rail capacity. So we we know that there is a bit of a a stabilization, even a recovery going on. But all that being said, the Ukrainian economy is around a third smaller than it was before the war. And the outlook for Ukraine is, of course, highly uncertain and depends on the war in the coming months. Yeah, every business that I've been to whether it's been farms in the north or the big steel plant that I'm at right now, says they are rebuilding extraordinarily fast. They're uh, impressed with how fast both the Ukrainian authorities and other Ukrainian businesses have been able to recover from damage, but their output is still a fraction of what it was before the war. 
And now, do you get the sense that because the economy is stabilizing, because the trains are running, that it can withstand the impact of the war better than it could previously? So let's be clear, the, the war has taken a devastating toll and it is very costly, right? So Ukraine spends almost half its budget on the military now. The central bank has been forced to print uh, money to fund the government. Um, so while there is economic stabilization and now a gradual recovery, and that is helping, Ukraine still depends on Western financial support to sustain the war economically. And there is some room for improvement, especially for the EU. Yeah, the failure of the EU to provide rapid backstopping to the Ukrainian government uh, seems like a huge mistake. And there are a lot of people, including the CEO of the ArcelorMittal plant that I'm at right now, who are very worried about hyperinflation. And when they talk about worrying about the future of inflation in Ukraine, they say, well, right now things are okay. It's only 30%. But we're really worried about what it's going to do in the future. Well, speaking of steel manufacturers, I actually spoke to the head of another steel company, Metinvest, Ukraine's largest, to get a sense of what he's worrying about when it comes to his company. So let's pause our discussion for a minute. Matt, we'll let you do a bit more inspection of Mittal, and we'll hear from you again later in the show. Sounds good. So Metinvest was one of Ukraine's largest private companies before the war, with revenues of nearly 20 billion US dollars. But that's before one of its plants, the Azovstal steelworks in the southeast of the country, became the scene of a brutal siege that killed hundreds and destroyed the plant. Tonight we are getting an up-close look at the relentless Russian assault on the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, Ukraine, in what may be the last stand for Ukrainian forces trying to hold it. And then you have that Avstal steel plant that's become that last line of defense really for Ukrainians. We know inside about a thousand civilians with soldiers, women, children. They haven't seen daylight, Brianna, for about 50 plus days. Ukraine says Russian forces have resumed attempts to storm the Azovstal steel plant, the final pocket of Ukrainian resistance in the city of Mariupol. After 60 days in darkness, they can finally crawl into the daylight. Above ground, they pick through the rubble, the remains of their place of refuge. They've lived in a maze of tunnels below this vast steel plant for weeks, the only way to survive the Russian bombardment. It was obviously harrowing for those who were trapped in the plant. Now with the siege over, it's become a symbol of the destruction the war has wrought and what it will take to rebuild. To find out more, I spoke to Metinvest boss Yuri Ryzenkov and asked him about the firm now. Yuri, hello. Hello. Hello, Mike. So what is the current state of those plants that you operated in Mariupol? The two Mariupol plants have been uh, badly damaged. We don't know how how badly the damage is, but, but they're definitely not operational right now, and it will definitely... Even after the occupation, it will take some time to get them operational again. And one thing after hearing that newsreel is thinking about how the soldiers and civilians were sheltering in the plant in bomb shelters. Why did you have bomb shelters there in the first place? To Azovstal and, and to Medinvest, uh, in fact, the war started in 2014 with the first so-called hybrid war that Russia started uh, at the time. And... Uh, since 2014, we kept our protection facilities, our bomb shelters, in a good order. Especially when the talks started at the end of last year, beginning of this year, about the possible Russian full-scale invasion. 
and uh, we stocked our bomb shelters with food, water, and then daily necessities there, suspecting that that most of our employees that that were on on shift at the time will have to use them in case of of, of bombardment. Obviously, we couldn't even imagine that somebody would, would have to live there for, for several weeks and, and even months. But as the events unfold from the first week of this invasion uh, and the siege of the city, the bomb shelters started being used uh, not only by our employees that were at the mills, but uh, also by the other city inhabitants and eventually by, by the military guys who were protecting the, uh, the city and the mill. So you mentioned that the sort of effects have been going on now for eight years to some extent since the initial incursions in 2014. How do you have to change your business to operate in those sort of conditions? And given the effect of the the war this year, how much of the company's sort of pre-war capacity is actually operational at the moment? Uh, Right now, in terms of steelmaking, we're operating at... 30% 30% to a half of the pre-war uh, levels. And even that capacity is uh, difficult to achieve because of the logistics. As the Black Sea ports are uh, not available for shipments of iron ore and steel and coal for, for Ukraine, we have to ship via land routes, and, and uh, the capacity of the land routes, unfortunately, either inadequate for the substantial shipments or too expensive for some of the goods that we're selling. In the UK, in the US, and in Europe, we hear a lot about the war economy of Ukraine, mostly in terms of Western arms and munitions being sent to the country. We hear substantially less about the sort of domestic story of the war economy. How does MetInvest contribute directly to that sort of economy? Since... uh February, end of February this year, as, as the invasion, actually even earlier than that, in Metinvest started to produce some of the war-related or defense-related materials. Like, for example, we were producing some protection barriers with, with the concrete and steel, and we were supplying that for the defense line of Mariupol and defense line of Zaporozhye prior to February invasion. As the invasion started, all of our enterprises, they started to produce in one way or another uh, military use materials, mainly like barbed wire or like uh, fences or concrete blocks or those uh, hedgehogs for anti-tank. But also, as the war progressed, we turned our enterprises to a very large extent towards the military needs. And we started to produce armored steel for the bulletproof vests. At the moment, we already supplied more than 150,000 bulletproof vests to, to the Ukrainian army and territorial defense. We started to produce special armored bunkers for our soldiers uh, to, to be used at the front line. The latest, we're producing those stoves, which can be used in winter to heat the food and, and, and to warm up in the field. So all of those things we're doing in quite substantial volumes in, in, in the last eight months. At the same time, we're lots of things that we are buying and supplying to the military. Like, for example, we supplied more than a thousand drones to the Ukrainian military. We've supplied tens of thousands of these military helmets, protection helmets. We've supplied medicine and other equipment that, that is necessary at the front line. 
One final question. We've reported a lot of the news recently on the gains made by the Ukrainian military uh, in the East. Uh, Say there was an end to the war tomorrow. How long would that process of recovery take? Well, most of the mills that are under our control, they have not been damaged or, let's say, substantially damaged. So they're in a good working condition. So getting it back up to the pre-war levels, it's a matter of, of months. It's obviously, it's not it's not a simple switch, but uh, within half a year to a year, we definitely can get all of our mills that are under our control to the pre-war levels. Now, when we're talking about the mills that are on the occupied territory, and specifically Azovstal and, and Illich, we have to see what sort of damages they sustained during the bombing. I would uh, suspect that, that the damage was substantial there and will take us some time until we can uh, restore the pre-war operations. Hopefully that all won't be necessary for too much longer and you can get back to your normal operations. Yuri, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, after the break, we'll turn to what Ukraine will need financially, of course, but also logistically to help rebuild after the war eventually, hopefully ends. But before that... It's the time in the show where we ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist. You can find all of our coverage on Britain's political and economic chaos, including your reporting, Samaya, on the country's fiscal hole. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you very much. You should consider signing up for our newsletters like The Bottom Line and Money Talks at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, we've got a sense of the current state of Ukraine's economy, but I want to turn now to the future, to what it's going to look like to rebuild Ukraine whenever the fighting stops. Matt spoke with Vladislav Rashkoven, who is the alternate executive director at the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, representing Ukraine about what needs to be done to help Ukraine rebuild. Here's their conversation. Thanks very much for joining Money Talks. Hello, Matt. How much do you think will eventually be needed to help Ukraine rebuild? Look, I think that the problems and and their magnitude, uh, which we see uh, during the war in Ukraine now, have not been met before in any terms. You know, the reconstruction of post-war Balkans, uh, post-tsunami Indonesia, you know, or post-natural disaster in Haiti, Puerto Rico, Pakistan, Nepal, but you can name them, you know. You go to the World Bank's website and you find all of them. None of them is close to the Ukrainian figures. World Bank recently issued the rapid damage assessment needs for Ukraine, and they estimate that the reconstruction needs are more than $350 billion for Ukraine, out of which a third are immediate needs for the next 18 months. This money does not exist now in the world, okay? 
Therefore, I strongly believe uh, that no multinational financial institution, even IMF or World Bank, or even national government like alone, uh, can tackle the project of uh, reconstruction of Ukraine single-handedly. Having said that, I believe uh, there is a place for all the official and private donors uh, to cooperate. And, uh, but there is a need of coordination. The risk which we will need, uh, need to mitigate a uh, fragmentation of aid, you know, because money money can come from too many sources, too little, and also the it's high volatility in terms. So if you one month you get a five billion dollars or ten billion dollars, and now months you don't have anything, this kind of uh, situation doesn't help very much, you know, to you know to plan accordingly the the reconstruction and uh, and also increase the transaction cost to manage all of that. So I name it, we need the economic or financial Rammstein, you know, for Ukraine. I mean, what do you think are the most immediate needs? And then what is longer term? We need to understand that we speak about several, let's say, time horizons. We speak about still immediate needs today. You know, we still be, speak because the reconstruction already started. We need to go through the winter. You know, it also requires a lot of winterization, as uh, World Bank uh, says, uh, of the housing, so the keeping the doors or windows uh, fixed, uh, roofs. Uh, you need to hold the goal with a fast recovery, which means the bridges, uh, the schools, uh, uh, etc. And later you need to have a more higher modernization, like uh, bringing them closer to European Union standards, like uh, railways, uh, airports, etc. These are these are the most important uh, needs which we have. I mean, you're obviously talking about modernizing the country, but at some level, one has to ask how much steel does it make sense to produce in Europe? And is it a logical investment to rebuild the Ukrainian steel industry? And the same question comes up around housing. There's a lot of devastated housing around Kharkiv, for example, that may be located too close to a hostile country where people might not want to live. How are those kinds of decisions being made in Ukraine's post-war modernization? Yeah, I think this is one of the major questions of, of the of the reconstruction plan because uh, it leads you to the crossroads uh, between uh, two important questions do you do it uh, fast and cheaper or you do it uh, a little bit longer but well thought uh, if you do fast and cheaper you may probably use the word recovery but in this case you are risky not to get rid of the Soviet or post-Soviet legacy of inefficiencies which we had. If you little, if you think a little bit longer and you do it right in the right way, you can come up exactly to the question that which you just asked. And uh, I'm sure we'll go to the second one, uh, the second way. You know, there will be more thoughts. Uh, and uh, I already see, uh, since I said the, the words modernizations, modernization are very widely used now in Ukraine. Uh, but clearly, probably we will need to go through some interim uh, recovery and later working on a, on a longer term modernization of the country also as a part of the EU accession process. Uh, but your question is absolutely right, because uh, one of the, you know, I would say book example, which I use is uh, from as a Soviet legacy, we had, uh, I don't remember, 11 airports and clearly that only three, four of them were used heavily. Uh, while others were too close to each other and they were too small. So probably you you just need to uh, extend and improve the fast, uh, fast train railway uh, and to be more in European Union standards. Last spring, the European Union promised $9 billion in support to Ukraine. However, it took ages to come through, mostly because Germany wanted to make sure the money was dispersed as grants and not loans. Does that make a big difference, do you think? You know, if you go back to the, you know, to the history of all the previous uh, reconstructions, recoveries, post-war or post-natural disasters, uh, there are 
two major lessons. The first is it should come grants and not loans because nobody wants the countries to go, you know, bust after the recovery. Uh, and that's why this is named the financial aid. And second is uh, the full recovery of the country after the war is not feasible only using the public money. You always need a uh, private capital to come. Uh, and I do hope, uh, I do rely that uh, the foreign capital will come to Ukraine because uh, I believe uh, Ukraine is the next big thing in Europe. Huge uh, investment, uh, its investments will be needed uh, for the reconstruction of the country, and there will be a space for many, many different players. Uh, but clearly, before we go there, the the governments, uh, you know, the national governments, international financial institutions, should play their role in this time. Uh, clearly, the the private capital will not come now. There's a two-year moratorium at the moment on Ukraine's foreign debt. Is that right? Yes. Is that sufficient? Do you think? Look, I think uh, the, the creditors went uh, absolutely correct understanding the situation in Ukraine. I should uh, be very frank. I think uh, the authorities did very well in the first months when they paid the debt because they showed uh, to the markets that they are reliable partners, uh, that they are reliable borrowers. Uh, they did not miss any payments, uh, even if probably there were some you know, possibilities for that because the situation in the first, especially in March, April, was very difficult. And I don't know if you know this story that uh, the Minister of Finance, uh, Kay Marchenka, they, was, they were telling the story in March that uh, the major problem for them in the first days uh, was just to connect to Bloomberg. You know, I think the next steps will depend on the length of the war and the, the deepness of the war, since, you know, Ukrainians are, do, do expect uh, first victory. So I hope uh, that uh, this victory will come also with reparations from Russia, which will be, you know, helping also to repay the creditors as well. One final question. When you look at past efforts like the Marshall Plan, say, that helped rebuild Europe, what do you think are the lessons of the Marshall Plan for what's happening now? Or are there any? I think the, the, the Marshall Plan is not correct to compare to Ukraine. I think Barry Eichengreen already said so many times about that. That time, the first, uh, there was a, uh, one, I don't know, has an English, Gegemon or Hegemon country, you know, which was supporting many other countries in Europe, uh, with a situation where there were no, uh, financial uh, international aid infrastructure. There were no Bretton Woods institutions yet. Uh, you know, at least they were not working well. And, and there was no European Union. So currently we have a mm, much uh, wider network and architecture already existing institutions. Uh, you know, we don't have one Gegemon country in the world uh, at the same time. We also know the, the mistakes and lessons learned uh, from other projects uh, like Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, uh, when uh, you try to impose some kind of external vision on the reconstruction of the country, I strongly believe that the vision for reconstruction should come from Ukraine, from Ukrainians, from its political leaders, from uh, from Ukrainian people, from Ukrainian elites. Uh, I think the next step is uh, to win the war. For sure, we will win. For sure, we will get reparations. There are, you know, four hundred billion dollars of Russian assets, uh, uh, you know, immobilized, at least, uh, let's use this word, uh, abroad, both government and private money. Uh, I'm sure they will be used uh, uh, one day for repayment, uh, for, for uh, supporting uh, recovery in Ukraine as well. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting us, and it's happy to speak to you.
So, Matt, Christian, I'm curious of what you made of that. Do you think that the World Bank estimate of $350 billion is enough to rebuild Ukraine? I don't think anyone can make even a reasonable ballpark estimate at the moment of how much it will take to rebuild Ukraine, particularly because they don't know how much of Ukraine will be reconquered at the moment when they're trying to rebuild it. And they don't know how much damage Russia is going to be able to inflict. So I'm sure it's very useful for the World Bank to do exercises like this, but I certainly wouldn't render a judgment on that. And what about that point you were making in that interview there, Matt, that there are some questions about just what should be rebuilt? A lot of things in Ukraine have been destroyed, obviously probably about half of the capacity of their steel industry has been destroyed. And then the question arises, should you rebuild those plants in the the post-war scenario? The CEO of the ArcelorMittal plant where I am now thinks that there will be actually plenty of demand, especially for what they call flat steel products after the war. And because they have so many trained steel workers, they'll be able to put a lot of people back to work. There's going to be a huge amount of demand for reconstruction products made out of steel in Ukraine, among other things. So in some areas, they've got the resources, they've got the trained people, and it does make sense for that to be a focus of the economy after it restarts. But you might not want to rebuild the Azovstal plant in the same place where it was because it's quite close to Russia and relations with Russia will continue to be hostile. You might want to build it someplace closer to Europe because your key trade links will be Europe in the future. There's a lot of destroyed housing in Kharkiv, for example, which is now close to the Russian border. Again, that's going to be a dangerous place. It's not clear how many people are going to want to go back there. So the question comes up, should you rebuild everything? Certainly you should be rebuilding to European standards if you're expecting to integrate into the EU rather than just rebuilding what was there before. And someone should be making some serious decisions about whether some things maybe should be left unbuilt. I think these are extremely difficult decision. So politically, I think there will be a push to rebuild what was there before. But as as Matt said, the emphasis by the Ukrainian government and also by their international donors is to try to rebuild a modernized version of the Ukrainian economy. So for example, that steel production is already geared towards the future of green steel, say, and to build Ukraine sort of as a model of a green digital economy. And this is going to be a a, a tough sell in some parts of Ukraine, I'm sure. Christian, you're writing our leader this week, looking at what else can be done. Uh, For people not familiar, an economist leader is a sort of more opinionated piece for the paper at the front of the edition. What sort of recommendations do you have? So the leader is looking at the current funding of the Ukrainian government mostly. Um, the budget deficit for next year is scheduled to be around 38 billion US dollars and on top comes 17 billion dollars for the immediate reconstruction needs of the country. Um, and that's a lot of money, right? And if the National Central Bank of Ukraine has to print uh, parts of that money, that's a sure way to generate inflation and lose all the foreign reserves uh, fighting a devaluation. So the West has an interest in making sure that Ukraine is properly funded and is predictably funded. And the US has been very supportive, um, providing grants in a timely fashion and has committed to 1.5 billion a month through 2023. Uh, And the EU has been dragging its feet and that's short-sighted and that risks losing US support um, as questions are being raised in Washington why the US should fund Ukraine and contribute the majority of the military aid when this is a European war uh, and the EU is slow to respond even on financial aid. And my sense is that EU member states have not fully appreciated how important it is that the EU is funding Ukraine on at least the same basis as the US. Yes, I think the monetary stability that would be provided by 
uh, a guarantee that the EU is going to provide fiscal aid in a macrofinancial assistance in a, fa in a timely fashion is incredibly important to attracting business uh, investment in Ukraine because people are already extremely reluctant to invest in an economy where rockets are falling every once in a while. And if they're also worried that the country is about to be hit with hyperinflation, then it makes that pitch even harder. I think that sort of speaks to the strange mix of things going on. On the one hand, the, the situation seems incredibly bleak. Obviously, you've got this war going on and you don't know how long it's going to last. And on the other hand, the economy is recovering to some extent and these plans are being put in place to set up funds for reconstruction. Yeah, it feels like an odd sort of blend of things. It is an extremely odd blend of things. There is an incredible sense of wartime enthusiasm and unity in the country. People are extraordinarily nice to each other, and the mood on the street is upbeat. But obviously a country whose GDP has shrunk by a third since the beginning of the war is not a prosperous place, but remarkably, people here seem to be remaining upbeat. Yeah, I think it's important also that this reconstruction is not just a rebuild of the country, but embedded in that reconstruction is also a vision of the future of the country as part of the EU, as part of the West, as, as a country that is economically successful to be able to guarantee its own security. So the interest in putting together a plan now to join forces with international partners is high in Ukraine. And of course, it's a very long journey and it's a lot of money. But Ukraine and the donor community are right to start planning while the war is ongoing. I feel very strongly that this is something that we're probably going to have both of you uh, back on the podcast at some point talking about again. Um, but for now, thank you very much, uh, Christian and Matt, for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Okay, Alice, Samea, what are your takeaways from all of this? Yeah, I mean, one thing I was struck by was the emphasis that Matt and, and others were placing on physical things like steel. And, you know, that commodity was obviously very important for the Ukrainian economy before the fighting started. But thinking about the kind of advanced services-based economy that Ukraine has wanted to become for some time, maybe steel should be a bit less important than it was in the pre-war economy. I think Christian's point is a really important one. Is the kind of economy they want to rebuild the same as the one that was there before? And then if not, then how do you bring that about? And I think if you do want to really, you know, beef up your services industry, then the key question for Ukraine is, is what's going to happen to its human capital, right? Will everyone who left come back or not? I mean, I saw one poll of Ukrainian refugees that said that 24% wanted to return, but will wait for a bit. Around half would return, but only after the end of the war. And 8% said that they would not return home. Yes, I think that's a really important point you make, Sumeya. Obviously, the sort of human capital question is one of the most important. And it will be interesting to see what happens with all of those refugees once the war hopefully ends. I guess the thing that I'm always really struck by when we actually interview and listen to people who are running businesses on the ground in Ukraine or are located in places of intense crisis is just how much they just are getting on with things. This reminds me of when I was reporting on a story in 2018 about Venezuela during the sort of depths of the crisis that Maduro had uh, created where there were sort of extreme food shortages, energy shortages and hyperinflation. You read all the articles about it 
and it sounded like it must just be like a hellscape to live in. And then when you actually spoke to people that were living in Venezuela, they said, well, you know, people are still just getting on with their lives. You still do have to run this sort of steel factory. And I don't know what my sort of prior for how much steel capacity in Ukraine would still be sort of able to function, but 50% is not zero, you know, everything doesn't just shut down, people do just have to keep producing and going about their lives. I always find it so useful to actually listen to people talk about it, because it's never quite what you expect from from just reading the news. And I agree with Sumeya, I was fascinated by the focus that Christian put on sort of the right way to rebuild. It sort of reminds me of that Churchill quote that you should sort of never let a good crisis go to waste. And thinking about the right way to rebuild, it does give you a real sense of that sort of wartime optimism. Yeah, I'm really glad that we were able to do an episode on this for a couple of reasons. One, because as important as the issues we always discuss are, as financial journalists, you could sometimes end up getting into sort of crunchy subject matter that is a couple of degrees removed from where it actually impacts people's lives. And this is definitely a case where the impact is is very clear and obvious and profound. And the other reason is that the discussion about the sort of economic effects of the war tends to revolve around what's happening to the Russian economy, the effects of the war on other European economies, or the financial and material support going to Ukraine from overseas. And sometimes we sort of ignore what's actually happening to the Ukrainian economy. And it's particularly interesting on that front because we've talked at length about how important it is that Ukraine is able to remain a free society and not be at risk of of attack. And for a free society to function, you have to have that sort of practical economic underpinning that our guests have been talking about. So the question of what's going on in Ukraine's economy and where it's heading should be one of the major things on our mind, not just a sort of secondary issue. And on that note, should we pivot to our statistics of the week? Yes. And Mike, why don't you go first? Yes, I'm going to move a little bit further east and talk a little bit about Kakao, which is a South Korean tech and messaging app. It's got 47.5 million monthly active users in Korea out of a South Korean population of about 52 million. So that's why it was an absolutely enormous issue recently when it suddenly failed. It was out of operation for hours, which it was pretty much like the the sort of digital infrastructure of South Korea collapsing all at once. It was one of the really buzzy tech companies of 2020 and 2021. The CEOs now resigned, bit of a scandal in Korea. But yeah, interesting to hear just how dominant cacao is in South Korea. Okay, I'll go next. Uh, my stat of the week comes from a piece that my colleague Ratchner Schanberg is writing about Brittany, asking, is Britain the new Italy? And in some ways, yes, just look at its politics. And in other ways, perhaps some of the the problems in Italy are actually worse than they are in Britain. So, for example, Italy has 37 older people for every 100 people of working age. That 37 compares to 30 in Britain and 26 in America. That is an awful lot of old people. I was actually at a lecture on pensions yesterday and uh, the professor was pointing out that in 1974, the US had sort of 10 young people for every person over age 65. And in Europe, by 2050, there will be less than two. Europe is very old and getting even more so. My stuff of the week is actually not from that uh, pensions lecture, but I have pinched it from the story that I wrote about Goldman Sachs, which reported its earnings this week. So my stat of the week is 12.6%, which is the share of the consumer loans that Goldman's consumer bank has made that it expects to write off its set aside 12.6% of those loans for losses, which 
is not to put too fine a point on it, an absolutely abysmal rate compared to sort of what other competitors who do consumer lending are setting aside for sort of similar loan portfolios of credit cards and things. JP Morgan has set aside 6.2% for comparison. So Goldman Sachs sort of launched its venture into doing consumer banking in 2016 and sort of expanded that in 2019 by launching the Apple Card. But it doesn't seem to have been able to port its sort of brilliance in Wall Street banking into Main Street banking just yet. Alice, you you get some points there for, I think, multiple statistics in comparison to your zero last week. So on that note, our thanks this week go to Yuri Ryzenkov and Vladislav Rashkovan. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcast at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Forward. And this is The Economist. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.